Well, thank you for indulging that longer scripture reading. You know, as I was telling Dave beforehand, before he read, there's one voice that's to be privileged in worship, and it's not mine. So if we're going to short shift anything, it's going to be my sermon, not the reading of God's word. So I hope you'll, it, it, the, the next couple of weeks of scripture readings will be fairly long as we make our way through the, through the plague narrative and uh, be instructed by God through that passage. So we're, what we're going to do this week is merely set it up. We're going to look at the preview or the prelude in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the pattern of the plagues and look at all nine of them, at least before the tenth one. We're just going to cover the first nine and, and, and do that in an overview fashion. And then we're going to come back in the third week and two weeks from the, this Sunday and look at the purpose that God had in mind in sending the plagues to Egypt to begin with. So let's pray together, and then we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and we sit under it. It is the voice of the living God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we sit now under your word and desire to hear your voice. Speak now, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 is really critical for understanding everything that's going to follow in the plague narratives. In fact, this text gives us the paradigm through which we view and understand all that's going to happen in this story. The fight of the century is getting ready to take place. It's been building for six chapters. Moses versus Pharaoh. But really, it's God versus Pharaoh. And even more specific than that, it's God versus false gods. We are made privy to every round, all nine rounds of this epic fight. And we don't even have to rent on pay-per-view. We get to see it right here. This text really defines for us the main issue that's at stake in the plague stories and in the larger event of the Exodus itself. This is not primarily, as I said, Moses versus Pharaoh, nor is it Moses versus the magicians of Egypt, nor is it really Israel versus Egypt. Rather, it's God versus the Egyptian pantheon of gods as represented by Pharaoh and his magicians. Or if we pull back even further and say, get informed by Revelation chapters 11 and 12, what's really going on is God versus Satan. What we are seeing is a challenge between the one true and living God, the God of Israel, and the deities of Egypt, the false gods that are being guided by Satan. As such, the real question then, the great theme that's at stake in this great Exodus struggle is who is God? Who's the real God? Who is the one true and living God? And as God says over and over and over again, these plagues are meant to reveal that God is God, that Egypt may know that I am the Lord. Who is sovereign over the operation of the universe from the water to the land to the sky? It's God. Whose will will come to pass in heaven and on earth, no matter how strong any political leader tries to fight against it? God himself. And that's why I've called these sermons, these three sermons on Exodus 7 through 10, the battle of the gods, because that's exactly what's taking place. Lest we think that I'm just making that up, 
look at Exodus 7, verse 1, where God says to Moses, he says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Moses is going in as an 80-year-old man representing God. All that he is doing is being accomplished in and through God. So God is the one who's operative here. But Numbers chapter 33, 3 and 4 also give us the understanding that false gods are involved here. Numbers 33, 3 and 4, they set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, referencing the chapters that are to come. Verse 4, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. So this was also an execution of judgment on false gods that were being exalted in the land of Egypt. So let's take a look at this main event fight, the battle of the gods between God and the Egyptian false gods. Represented, true God represented by Moses and Aaron, false gods represented by Pharaoh and his magicians. So we're going to look at three aspects to this fight this morning, the pre-fight pep talk, the in-ring stare down, and the knockout punch. That's where we're going. Let's look at the pre-fight pep talk in verses 1 through 7. These verses, as well as all of chapter 6 that we saw last week that focused on the faithfulness of God, is really a sort of pre-fight pep talk for the championship prize fight that's getting ready to take place. Moses had his doubts, for sure. We learned about those in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Exodus as we made our way through those chapters. And while Moses had his doubts, his trainer, God, did not. He believed in himself, God, and knew what he was going to accomplish through his weak servant. So the trainer, God the Father, massaged Moses' shoulders, squirted water in his mouth, got in his face, and gave him one firm pep talk after another. This is the reason, Moses, you can trust me. This is my track record of faithfulness so far. These are the promises that I've already made that I've kept. These are the promises that I am keeping, and these are the promises I will keep. And by the passages in, Moses has his gloves tied, his robe is draped, and his shoes are tightened, and he's hopping from foot to foot, pumped, ready to rumble. So he trots down the aisle up to the ring. He enters between the ropes and the announcer proclaims his presence to the watching world. We see the last of these in-ring pep talks in verses 1 through 7 as God again reminds Moses of his faithfulness. I just want to highlight these quickly. Look at verses 1 and 2 first of all where God said he made Moses like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, this is exactly what God told him in chapter 4, verse 16 to do, and it's happening. It's happening. Also, in verses 3 and 4, God reminds Moses again that Pharaoh will resist. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is virtually a word-for-word quote of chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 21. God is keeping his promises. 
And then in verse 5, God assures Moses that he will, in fact, deliver Israel. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This, again, is a quotation of chapter 3, verse 20. God is keeping his promises. Things are happening exactly the way he said they would. And at the reminder of these words, Moses and Aaron are heartened, and they head to the ring. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Moses has spent his time training in the wilderness, which I believe is an Old Testament allusion to Rocky IV. He's now an old, grizzled veteran with Mickey, I mean Aaron, in his corner. And he is ready to meet the new young hotshot with the undefeated streak, be it Clubber Lang or Ivan Drago or Tommy Morrison, or the Pharaoh of Egypt. You're welcome, Brandon Boswell. <laughs> we had to get that in there somewhere. So that's the pre-fight pep talk. The in-ring stare down, number two. Look at verse nine. By the way, I want, you to, I want you to have your Bibles out in front of you just to be sure that I'm not making this up. Okay, I am a deliverer of another person's mail. It's very important that you not take my word for it. You've got to be good Bereans and make sure this is coming out of the Scriptures. So verse 8 we read, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now this is exactly what God told them to do in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So again, God keeping his promises, God commanding of Moses and Aaron the exact same thing that they were, at least Moses at that time, was told to do in chapter 4. Now, why were they to do this? We don't, we're not told in Exodus chapter 4 why God is setting it up this way, but it's clearly for a couple of reasons. First, this is a sign that Moses wasn't just a shepherd in Midian. Think about this. An 80-year-old shepherd Walking into the presence of Pharaoh needs some credentials. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, Pharaoh would look at this old man and say, who is this guy? Get him out of here. He would have no time for entertaining an 80-year-old Hebrew who was just wanting to come for a talk. And so Moses and an 83-year-old older brother of his, Aaron, are coming in. I mean, they're probably not too ginger on their feet. They're walking slowly, they're journeying toward Pharaoh, and so they're going to need something here to demonstrate their credibility. Two elderly men are no threat to the highest superpower in the ancient world, but God is with them. And when, when they throw down that staff and it becomes a serpent, verse 10 says, this is exactly what they did, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and did just or cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. When they did this, Moses was taking the symbol of Egypt's majesty represented by the serpent, the cobra, the snake, the Pharaoh, and then made it crawl in the dust. 
Phil Riken makes a comparison when he says, it would be like taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office and wringing its neck. That's what's going on here. Taking a national symbol of power right in front of the one who wields that power and showing that there's a greater power. A public challenge is being issued. Brothers and sisters, this is not tactful diplomacy. This is a gauntlet being thrown down. The Lord is calling Pharaoh out and declaring his authority over him. And what happens as a result? Two can play this game. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. These men are not magicians. They're not playing card tricks. This is not sleight of hand. These aren't illusions. This is not Disney. This is not the circus. This is not Las Vegas. These guys are priestly representatives of Satan, represented in the false gods of Egypt. They are acting in service to him. They are able to duplicate the sign because their power is demonic in origin. They are doing it, according to the text, by their secret arts. Satan's power, though not absolute, is definitely real. But notice that the best the Egyptian magicians could do was to imitate what God did. They can't demonstrate a greater power. All they can do is copy it. They simply repeat Aaron's sign. You know why? This is because Satan can only corrupt. He can never create. He's a counterfeiter, not an innovator. He's an annoying copycat. This explains why every false religion often contains some ethical principles or sacred rituals that vaguely resemble Christianity. Because all he can do is copy it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, points at his works when it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. That's what Satan does. Miracles are possible. We should not automatically deny the possibility of miracles. The Bible bears witness to the reality of supernatural events taking place. However, beloved, not all miracles originate with God. The ability to perform miracles is not necessarily a credential of an authentic Christian. The Bible is clear that an ability to perform miraculous signs does not prove God's anointing in the least. Remember the story in Acts chapter 16? I'll remind you of that story. Acts 16 verses 16 through 24 said, As we were going to the place of prayer, we we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Not every evidence of divine activity is truly divine in origin. 
And that's what we see here with the, these magicians of Egypt by their secret arts performing counterfeit miracles. And as we read, they do it throughout the plague narratives, except when they get to the third plague, which we read about with the gnats. They're not able to duplicate. So we've seen the pre-fight pep talk, the in-ring stare down, and now the knockout punch. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time and most of our time. Look at verse 12 in the middle. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's a beautiful statement. That's the heart of this passage and what it's trying to teach. This is a loud statement that the God of the Israelites was the Lord of Pharaoh and he's the Lord of Egypt. God is sovereign as Satan is on a leash. This is a picture and preview of all that is about to happen. This episode functions then as a sneak peek of coming attractions that God will enjoy over Pharaoh a great and decisive victory, even as Pharaoh and Egypt and the false gods put up a fight. Peter Inns, commentator, says, Counterfeit power, although real power, is not lasting power, and neither the Israelites nor the Egyptians should be fooled by appearances. Imagine what happened there as the cobra or some large snake is there and begins to consume the other one as Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. And what happens as a result? Look at verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now we're going to come back and talk more. We've talked a little bit in this series about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but that will be a critical purpose in the plagues. And so we're going to come back in a few weeks and deal with that in more detail. But I do want to pull out a couple of things right now. What happened as a result? I mean, think about this. You've got this divine miracle being done. A snaff, a staff becoming a snake right in front of their eyes, and then the Egyptians duplicating that by their secret arts and doing the same thing. But then Aaron's staff eating up the staffs of the Egyptian magician. You would think, wow, Pharaoh's going to fall down on his face because he's just witnessed an astounding miracle of divine origin and he's going to worship the true and living God, right? No, he's not. He's not. There's a world of application in that. There is a world of application between verse 12 and verse 13. And that's what I want to talk about the rest of this sermon. We tend to think that if people can just see an external, visible manifestation of a work of God, they will believe. No, they won't. No, they won't. Now, they may, but it won't be because of the miracle because God worked in their hearts to remove the hardness and the blindness and give them eyes to see. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing to witness a powerful demonstration of the miraculous and to dismiss it. This is, this is the first time that we know of that the Pharaoh of Egypt is confronted. Now he's seen, especially his predecessors in Exodus chapter 1, I mean they saw 
God multiply the people of Egypt, and no matter what that particular Pharaoh did to try to snuff out the work, they continued to grow and continued to grow, and even at the threat of infanticide and genocide, the people of Israel still expanded. But this Pharaoh has not seen any such thing. And right as he's looking at a manifestation of miraculous divine power, he dismisses it. And he hardens his heart, and he's not going to listen. This is very similar to what Jesus encountered in Matthew chapter 12. If you want to turn there, just hold your finger in Exodus 7 and go with me quickly to Matthew chapter 12. And I want to remind you of a story in Matthew 12 where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man and heals him and the exact response that resulted as a result of that, very similar to what is going on here in Exodus 7. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? Could this be the anointed one? Could this be the man whom God has promised since Genesis 3.15? Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, verse 25, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That's what's going on with Pharaoh. What's going on is attributing to the devil the work of God. No person can be saved who does that. That's Jesus' point. It's not a question of whether there's some great unforgivable sin that people really don't want to commit, that they somehow find themselves committing. That's what people typically take this text as. Like, any, That's not the point. The point is, if you attribute to Jesus, the work of the devil, you're not going to look to him as any sort of God-anointed son of David savior who can forgive your sins and reconcile you to God, so you're going to be lost. That's why you're not going to be forgiven, because you're never going to receive Christ. And in fact, you're hardening yourself to the point where you won't even recognize a true work of God, because that is a true work of God. Jesus casting out the demon healing the man from a demon-pressed man who was blind and mute. I mean, talk about a terrible affliction. He's blind, he's mute, and he's demon-possessed. Good grief. And Jesus heals him, and the man speaks and sees, verse 22 says, and they said, that's by the prince of demons he did that. We also learn here that people who ask for a sign may not even want to believe. 
We, we often think that, oh, they're so genuine. They're so humble. Listen, they're asking God for a sign. They want to believe. No, they don't. That's not necessarily true. Why, why would we think that? This sign in Exodus 7 is given in response to a request from Pharaoh. And he has no intention whatsoever of believing it. Yet when Moses and Aaron give him a sign, he contemptuously dismisses it. Paul dealt with this. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul is reminding us of what Greeks sought as he ministered to them. He said, Greeks seek signs. I go and preach the gospel to them, and they go, oh, not without a sign, brother. You're going to give us some evidence that you're a believer, that you're a true disciple of this anointed one, Jesus, you're, that, you're the, that you're God, not without a sign? Show us. Prove it. Jews demand signs. Greeks ask for wisdom. The opponents of Jesus also ask for a sign. We see that over and over again in the Gospels. Yet it's clear from the context that they have no intention of believing the signs. For this reason, Jesus remarked in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 40, that it's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah, which is a reference to three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, namely the resurrection. Jesus said, you want a sign? Resurrection. That's it. That's all you get. That's the one sign that remains, isn't it? the resurrection of the Son of God. Announced to the whole world, deal with it. Deal with it. The Son of God has been raised from the dead. The definitive sign that he is the true Son of God and the only Savior of the world. Accredits everything he said. If you can prove he's in the tomb, dismiss him. If he's the God-man who's been raised from the dead, bow to him as Lord right now because you're going to face him one day and give an account of your life. Jesus said, that's it. That's all you're getting. The resurrection. Look at Luke chapter 16. One more text on this before we wrap up. One more text. Luke chapter 16 and the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Familiar story to many of us, but again, underscoring the reality that Signs in and of themselves have no power whatsoever to save anyone. Luke 16, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. However, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here, that you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. 
And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Verse 31, he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you won't believe this, a resurrection of a dead man will do you no good either. So says Jesus. This is where the power is. Not in any miracle. The word of the living God gives life. Nothing else does. Even those who witness the miracles, as we've seen, refuse to believe. Here's a contemporary analogy, a couple of them. When asked what he would say one day when God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? Famous British atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell replied the following. He said, didn't give me enough evidence. Not enough evidence. The reality is this. No amount of evidence would be enough. And second, you had evidence every single day of your life. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Outside, look up. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, night after night, pours forth speech. It's shouting to everyone, everywhere, God is real. And what do we do, according to Romans 1, in our natural state? We suppress the truth and unrighteousness so we can do whatever the hell we want. That's what we do. For a heart that is set on rebellion, even a miracle can be explained away. Pharaoh did it. People do it every day. Jacqueline Duffin is a medical expert who shares a fascinating account. This is really an, an amazing story of personally witnessing and documenting miracles in terms of the healthcare field. And yet she tragically remained an atheist in her convictions. In her piece, Can a Scientist Believe in Miracles? She concludes the following. She says, quote, I've published two books on medicine and religion. My research uncovered dramatic stories of recovery and courage. It reveals some striking parallels between medicine and religion in terms of reasoning and purpose. And it shows that the church had not shrunk from science in its deliberations over the miraculous. Though an atheist, I believe in miracles, wondrous things that happen for which we can find no scientific explanation. Still refuses to believe. Acknowledges that they're real. Acknowledges that they happen. What's our hope? What's our hope? In light of the unbelief that's still resident in our own hearts, the unbelief that's all around us, people suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, what is our hope? Our hope is this. It's the exodus is our hope. The exodus showed... God's triumph over Satan. But do you know what? The exodus was not God's greatest triumph over Satan. God's greatest 
triumph over Satan was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan opposed Jesus from the day he was born. He used the power of government to try to kill him. He used the power of demons to try to intimidate him. He personally tempted him him in the wilderness. He used the power of religion and religious leaders to send priests to accuse him. And finally, God allowed Satan to put Christ to death. But that turned out to be Satan's biggest mistake because it was by dying for our sins that Jesus delivered us from the devil's power. By bruising the heel of Jesus in accordance with the prophecy and promise of Genesis 3.15, he was crushing his own head. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 remind us of this precious reality. Would you look there with me quickly? Colossians chapter 2, one of the greatest verses on this very subject in the, in the whole New Testament regarding the work of Christ and how it demolished and defeated decisively the work of the devil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Let's start at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's you, Christian, brother, sister, here this morning, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive together with him, together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you have to answer to God on the basis of his justice for your sin against him. There is, there is a record of your debt, indebtedness in heaven right now. And there are legal demands attached to it, namely your eternal punishment due to your life failed to live to the glory of God. But there's good news. That record can be expunged. That record can be turned aside. That record of debt can be canceled. How? According to verse 14, look, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because on the cross, God satisfied the, the, the justice that our sins deserve by absorbing in his body and in his soul the curse that was due them. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So if you will turn from your sin and embrace Christ, your legal obligation to the law of God has been met. There is no record of debt standing against you. It has been canceled. It has been set aside. It has been nailed to the cross. Would you receive Christ this morning? Kids, would you receive Christ this morning? Every day you live, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you are merely storing up greater wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. But if you will turn from your sin and embrace Christ by faith, that record will be set aside. And in in its place, a perfect record of righteousness will be given to you, namely the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, lived in perfect fulfillment of God's law. But notice there's a demonic element here that's also disarmed and disrupted, not just the legal obligation, but as a result of that, now we're delivered from Satan's power because Satan had one thing against us, unforgiven sin. That's the only thing he could use in the court of God to condemn us. God, you can't let him in. You can't let 
Bobby in, can't let Tom in, can't let Justin, no way, no way, can't let him, can't let Tim in, can't let him in. Know why? Unforgiven sin. You're a righteous God. You're justice. Remember what you did with Adam? Had to get him out of there. Had to get him out of there. Can't be in your presence. Had to, had to pronounce a curse of death on him. But now, Jesus turns and can say, wait, no, their sins are forgiven. By virtue of my work on the cross, he's taken the bullets out of Satan's gun. There is no, there, he has no bullets left. That's what he means. He disarmed him. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. This is why we have no ultimate fear of death because our death has been swallowed up in victory. Do you notice that term, swallowed up? Remember where we read, read of that verse in verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54? Just as Aaron swallowed up, Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staff, so death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Christ rose from the dead and swallowed up death. He conquered death by dying and rising. And in him, we too will conquer death and rise again. And so, brothers and sisters, this is our hope this morning, that Christ has swallowed up death in victory through his resurrection on the cross. Let's rejoice in him, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word this morning, reminding us of your ways in history, but also pointing us forward to the greater exodus that we have experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world, for living a perfect life, for laying that life down on the cross to be punished in our place for our sin, for all those who would turn from sin and ever believe in you, and then taking your spotless life and leaving it in a grave, and then by the word of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, being brought back to life three days later, ever to live, glorified, unconquerable, reigning and ruling Lord Jesus Christ until you come once again to rescue your people and make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until that day, keep us ever hoping in you. Bring the lost into your kingdom. Save all of your people and make your name great. Hallowed be your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.